enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone, your end-time watchman, bringing you light in a dark world where truth is rivaled with a lie and the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and when these things begin to come to pass then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone. The prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome. This is Brenda Johnson. I am the hostess of As the Day Approaches. I want to welcome you this morning for the show and I'm going to see how long I last today because I either have a cold or the spring is really uh, getting to me. So uh, I'll see how long my voice lasts, but hopefully it will last for the entire show so that I can bring to you all the stuff that I have on my mind today. I wanted to start out today with a couple of scriptures. Um, the show's name is taken from Hebrews ten twenty three through 25. And let me share what it says with you today. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold unswerving lead to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So my name, my show is na- named after as the day approaches, it's a place where we can come together, where we can discuss the things that are happening on the earth that that relate to Bible prophecy, world religions, uh, counterfeit Christianity, and religious tolerance. Today I'm focusing on uh, Islam and world religions and how this plays a part in this last day scenario. I was really inspired uh, this week by this evangelist that was at my church. Um, I consider myself non-denominational. I have been in a variety of churches from charismatic to Pentecostal to, to conservative to now Baptist. I go from one to the other, not because I want to, you know, church shop or or a hunt for a church. We like to get um, involved in a church and plan ourselves there. But I've been in Missouri for five years, and I've actually been to several churches in that five years, uh, considering circumstances. And at this church, uh, one thing I like about the Baptist church, and I'm not a Baptist, so to speak, but one thing I do like about them is their uh, commitment to the Word of God. I like how they dig into the Word of God. 
Um, of course, every church that you go to um, or any church that you go to, you're not going to completely agree with everything they say. But he had, there is an evangelist this week who is spurring one another on uh, to last days. And he is an old man, probably in his 70s. And I really appreciate those kinds of uh, speakers because they really uh, bring what we haven't heard for a long time into our perspective uh, because they have grown up in a whole another generation in which uh, a lot of people are growing up today. I'm I'm 45. I'm not ashamed about that. I was for a while being in my 40s, but. Um, I know that I have a place and a plan and a purpose, so I'm not ashamed about what God has and I hope uh, has for me and and for for whatever ministry he has me in. So I am excited for the next 30 years that he gives me, he blesses me with that. But this man was uh, very um, uh, encouraging. At the same time, he was speaking a message that we all need to hear. And, you know, I was saved when I was 10 in the Catholic Church through a Baptist lady. And everyone asked me why or what was different about your salvation as a child and you never walked away from the Lord. I mean, considering I was Catholic, who knows, you know, I could have walked away from the Lord because I didn't know what I was doing or, you know, I hear all the different kinds of stories, but as a teenager, I actually became more involved um, with my, my uh, faith. I actually learned about the Catholic church. And after I learned about my own faith, I actually left my faith at the age of 17. But people ask me, why didn't you leave? What was different about you and a lot of different stories and, stories. Mine, I had, you know, I had to really think about it because I didn't know what the difference was. Well, the difference is, for me, is that at the age of 10, it was a repent salvation. I was led in repentance. I was repenting of my sins. And I wasn't just saying a quick little prayer of, of salvation, of coming down to the aisle. I was very, very distraught with myself, with my sins, with the condition of my soul. I was extremely uh, lost, not knowing what to do with myself. And that made a huge difference for me. And the Lord discipled me. I didn't have any discipleship because we moved away from the area where the lady who led me to the Lord lived. So but this man on Sunday, he talked about the patience of God. And is God patient? Well, we know that he is a patient God because me, my, you know, I am strong in evangelism, and I tend to be patient with people to come to know him. And I actually want to pray for the day of salvation and, and the day of his coming. At the same time, I understand that there are going to be many people who are lost and not uh, entering the kingdom of God. So in a sense, I sometimes say, well, you know, I really want you to come, but then again, I don't. So that's really the heart of God. But there comes a time when he will um, actually um, lose his patience 
I don't mean lose it as an irresponsible, but lose his patience. He, he comes a time when he says enough is enough. And I really strongly believe that we are entering some times of great um, struggle, of great temptation, of great um, decisions and choices that we have to make, especially here in the United States. I'm speaking from the United States. For those of you who are from other countries listening on Blog Talk Radio, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, in this scripture that I had shared with you, and the reason I am going all into this is because this show is specifically to stir you, to get you thinking, to get you going in in, in, in the direction where you need to go in your faith, in your walk. I like to stir up issues. I like to talk about things that people don't generally talk about in our day. You might not hear this from the church, but I am going to share it with you because I will apply it to what the scriptures say for today, and I will apply it to all the events that are happening. I really believe that we are in the last time. And and this old man that was preaching, he said, you know, I can tell you seven things. Well, probably he said I probably could tell you more, but I could tell you at least seven reasons why I think we're in the time of the end. And, of course, I did a show on uh, date setting and, you know, from the time that the apostles walked on the earth until uh, today, everybody thought that they were in the time of the end. Our job is to watch. Our job is to make people aware about the events happening. But like he's saying and like I'm saying, there are events going on today that actually make my hair stand up. Um, and and in Hebrew, it's 1026, further down in the scripture in which I use for this show, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the laws of Mo- law of Moses died without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And, you know, we today do not take sin seriously. We do not take these times seriously. And I really believe that the church is asleep today. I believe that the church is not paying attention. Well, I believe that here in the United States, and I'm speaking as a, an American uh, f- from this country. Uh, I know that other uh, Christians in in other parts of the earth are actually uh, very strong and vibrant, and and more persecution is happening on the face of this earth today, possibly because there's so many more people. But but the, 
than in all the times of the martyrs of the saints. And we need to understand this. And a time is coming. It is the doors are closing for the United States of America and for for the world around us. And today on this show, what my I've, I'll say might scare you. I have been known, and uh, it, when I was in high school, I wanted to share Jesus with all my Catholic friends, and I wanted to, you know, I thought, well, they already heard about Jesus, so what I need to do is share with them about the second coming of, of Christ. And I thought they would be as excited as I was about his coming, but instead I scared all my friends. I remember praying and asking the Lord to help me uh, to uh, do his will and not to scare them unnecessarily. And that if he wanted me to have the conversations with them, that he would stir them up to start the conversation with me. And I tell you, every single day, somebody came to me to talk about the revelations, even when they were scared to death. But I might scare a few of you today. Uh, We are going to talk about Islam. We're continuing our study on this um, uh, world religion. Uh, The more I I study, I've, I've studied it for a long time, I've actually witnessed and evangelized Muslims in the universities of Minneapolis. I am not in Minneapolis at this time. I am actually in Missouri, but I have uh, worked with them. I have evangelized them I, uh, through Bible college and uh, missions training and cultural studies. I actually talked to them. I talked to them in France when I was there as a missionary. Uh, God had me uh, share the simple faith of salvation with a sheik, I believe, in an African or Moroccan uh, Muslim neighborhood, and also in the town of Orléans, where Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. I uh, shared the gospel with a lot of Arab Muslims. Now, France is having a, uh, uh, this is in 1986. Now, France today is having. Uh, the same problems, not as severe as England, um, where they, they feel that Islam is actually taking over. Well, unfortunately for France and for England and and, and Germany and Denmark and the, all those countries that are being um, uh, feeling, I should say, invaded by Islam, this was their intent. Their intent was to 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 plant themselves in that country, in those countries, and by just the 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 mere uh, just by how they uh, have their family line, or you know, they have a lot of kids. Uh, Westerners, we tend to have less. Uh, they they have lots of children, and then they have the children grow up, and then they use our system, our democratic system, to actually take power. And once they take power, they will crush the country in which they are dwelling. Uh, so today, the focus of my study in Islam is going to be the Muslim Brotherhood and the coming reign of terror. I want you to get to know the brother, the Muslim Brotherhood today. That is my goal. I uh, 
you know, if you haven't heard of the events going on today, I will actually update you a little bit. There are 12, um, <clears throat> no, 11 countries that are in an uprising in the Middle East. Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Tanzania, Morocco, Algeria, Bahrain, Oman, and Yemen. They're all in an uprise, and they're calling it a revolution, a social justice revolution. Lebanon, with its own pre-existing political divisions, is feeling the heat and the tensions are building in Qatar and the United United Arab Emirates, a this uh, short for UAE. Then you have the country no one is talking about, the Ivory Coast in the city of Abidjan. What is going on? All these countries are Muslim. Why the upheaval? Is there a revolution going on? They're saying there is. We see headlines declaring democracy has come to the Middle East. I bet you all have heard that. Many in the West see it as a social revolution. Is it? Is it really democracy taking place? And is Islam at the forefront of this movement? I believe today I have some answers for you. We will explore what's really going on in these countries. Now, on today's episode, my, I'm narrowing my focus on the Muslim Brotherhood for a, a really big reason. We're going to look at who they are, what their agenda is, if they're a threat to the U.S. and the West, which, you know, we are seeing um, some rumblings. We're seeing some, some stirring up even with the European countries. We haven't quite trickled over here yet to the to the United States like it has in Europe. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to come. It's actually already here. It's just lying dormant. They call it Takia. I think I'm saying that right. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. And I don't have anyone who's in Islam to correct me, so that's okay. But what what that mean, what that is is what they do is they they uh, they lie covertly within the society, and they they overtly look like they are uh, agreeing with the policies, agreeing with the culture, agreeing. You know, they're they're kind of acquiescing. They're being very quiet. They're they're laying low until they get a call for jihad, and that is to rise up in revolution. When they say it's just like war, the time is now, rise up. And you're actually seeing that happening, in my opinion, in the Middle East. Um, So we're going to take a look at first, I'm going to go into the history of Muslim Brotherhood, and how I'm going to do it is I'm going to start with um, the threat that the Muslim Brotherhood is in the United States. reason I'm doing that is because most of my audience today is from the U.S., and I want you to 
put in perspective what this group is all about. Now, we had 9-11-2001, and after the, the attacks on our country, we did a thorough investigation of why it happened and what happened. Now, in October, 20, uh, the date being the 26th of the year 2007, that was about four years ago now, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, uh, the, Ho the, the Holy Land Foundation, which I would think, I would think that that would mean, you know, Israel, when you hear the Holy Land Foundation, we're used to in the United States thinking, Israel, the Holy Land. Oh, because, you know, a lot of us are Christians here. We have a Christian perspective. But that is not what that is. The Holy Land Foundation was the largest Islamic charity in the United States. And the document that I'm going to focus on a little bit today, maybe maybe a good portion of my show, but I'm going to focus on this document and pull it, pull it apart and let you see it. So that you can you can see what's really going on. The document is an exclusive report produced by the NEFA Foundation staff based upon exhibits published as as evidence by the U.S. Justice Department in the recent case United United States versus the Holy Land Foundation. And this investigation was to to uh, find proof of the terrorist activities that are happening happening in the United States. And so this is what the information, what we found when we did this investigation. And lo and behold, behind all of this is the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Holy Land Foundation is headquartered in Richards, Richardson, Texas. It, it was originally known as the Occupied Land Fund, which, you know, kind of gave it away of what it actually is is going for. The organization's website stated this. They stated, our mission is to find and implement practical solutions for human suffering through human humanitarian programs that impact the lives of the disadvantaged, disinherited, and displaced people suffering from man-made and natural disasters. Wow, that sounds really good. It really does sound like a really good good movement. But you got to know one thing about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and also Islam in general is Islam, it's okay in the Quran to lie if the end is going to produce glory to Allah. So it is okay to be deceptive if in the end Allah will be praised. So what is happening here, and this is what was uncovered, is that they are posing as some humanitarian organization. And this, they had to, they had to prove whether this was true or false and what kind of activity is actually happening here in our country. Now, the primary area of focus they claimed was the Palestinian refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories. They also claimed they provided support 
to victims after the disasters and wars in Bosnia, Kosovo, Turkey, and the United States. You know, like after the Iowa floods, the Texas tornadoes, and the Oklahoma City bombing. <clears throat> it was hot. It was highly possible that they funded some of these causes, but this this case revealed that this was all a cover for what they really supported and funded. Now, on October 22, 2007, a federal judge in Dallas declared a mis- mistrial on most counts in the U.S. government's case against the Holy Land Foundation for relief and development. Despite this unsatisfactory outcome for all sides, because it was dismissed, you know, they weren't they weren't accepted and they weren't rejected or, or they weren't convicted and they weren't were weren't weren't affirmed as being okay. The case offers an unprecedented inside look into the history of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States as well as its goals and structure. Now, I bring this to your attention first in order to give you an understanding of the threat and the intentions of the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S., the West, and then we're going to go to the world. And we're going to, we're going to go to the events that are happening today. Um, I'm telling you, this is, this is um, prophecy in the making. Now, I'm not saying prophecy as in Isra- Israeli prophecy or biblical prophecy. Well, yeah, I am saying biblical prophecy because I'm seeing something extraordinarily um interesting in Islam that years ago I did not see, but I do see it today. And I believe this all has to do with the coming of the end. Uh like I said in my last show I talked about Ishmael in Israel. The every event of prophecy involves Israel and it's not surprising that Ishmael is actually in 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 a combat or in contrast to Israel and that the the accumulation or the ending of all things may be a last struggle between Ishmael and Israel, the promise and the and and the man made. Uh, so keep back in, in the back of your mind. Now, during the course of the trial, federal prosecutors presented an area array of internal Muslim Brotherhood documents from the 1980s and the early 90s that give a first ever public view of the history and ideology behind the operations of the Muslim Brotherhood, known as the Ikhwan, the group. It means the group or the brotherhood. In the U.S. over the past four decades, these documents accepted as valid by the defendants and admitted at trial without protest discuss recruitment, organization, ideology, and the development of the group in different phases in the United States. For researchers, the documents have the added weight of being written by the Ikhwan leaders themselves rather than interpretations of secondary sources. This report is not intended to be a comprehensive review of all the material presented in the trial or a comprehensive look at the individuals from these groups that have direct 
ties to terrorist organizations. A comprehensive annotated compilation of every single exhibit is available on the NEFA Foundation website. So if you want to go and look at more details, because I am just going to give you kind of an overview, uh, there's is completely impossible, and I hope I can get through all the material I have for you today. But it is uh, completely impossible to actually share with you everything that is available for us to see. Now, what is the ICON? Let me let me let me first of all go there because this is used. You know, um, we need to start becoming familiar with some of these Arabic words. It's Arabic for brothers. So if you hear I K H W A N ICON, it's it was a, it, this is what it is. It was the Islamic religious militia which formed the main military force of the Arabian ruler Ibn Saad and played a key role in establishing him as ruler of most of the Arabian Peninsula. In his new state of Saudi Arabia, the Iqwan was made up of Bedouin tribes. According to Wilf... Fred Thiesiger, this militant religious brotherhood declared that they were dedicated to the purification and the unification of Islam. This movement had aimed at breaking up the tribes and settling the Bedou around the wells and oases. They felt that the nomadic life was incompatible with strict conformity with Islam. Ibn Saad had risen to power on this movement. Later, the Ikhwan rebelled when they were accused Ibn of religious laxity when he forbade them to raid into neighboring states. You really got to understand some of these words and groups. And so this was way back in the time, you know, when Bedouin tribes were were, uh, kind of roaming around and Islam was in more of the early stages but it was uh, a group of brothers. And this is where the, the the Muslim Brotherhood is taking some of this. The most compelling evidence of the Brotherhood's true aims is con- contained in an internal memorandum written in 1991 by a senior Brotherhood leader entitled On the General Strategic Goal for the Group in North America. See, we're a group. We're a mission. We're a mission field for them. In the document, the author is strikingly clear about the ultimate goal of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. And this is what they say. The Ikhwan must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all other regions, over all other religions, excuse me. <clears throat> so the Aquan, the Brotherhood, must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand, grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands, our hands, meaning they want to use us to destroy us. 
in the hands of the believers and including them so that it is eliminated and God's remained victorious over all religion. So this isn't just a vie for world power. This is a vie for world religion, the establishment of a world religion, a one world religion. <clears throat> this is their goal, and they are quite organized. And the exhibits make four things clear. Many of the ex- existing organizations that have set themselves up as the interlocutors, a person in the, that is a person who takes part in a conversation, often form, formally or officially, so an interlocutor is somebody who intervenes on the behalf of another. Between and they they intervene or communicate between the Islamic community and the United States and the outside world including government, law enforcement, and other faiths, were founded and controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood from their inception. So all these groups that are interacting with each other are under the umbrella of the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, so these are these organizations that are here uh, trying to work together. They might be different names. They might be called, uh, have, have a different perspective, well, not really a dis- different perspective, but a different way of going about it. They've got a different plan, a different job. <clears throat> so many of them changed their names over time to achieve broader national accept- acceptance. Two, the Brotherhood established a highly structured organization with many different faces inside the United States while deliberately and continually seeking to hide the Brotherhood's links to its front groups. So you got a front group. You gotta see this. You got a front group out in front that looks like it's humanitarian, but behind it is a military offensive of secrecy and a structure of destruction <clears throat> being built. Excuse me, I need to get a drink. Okay. <clears throat> Number three, the agenda to be carried out by these groups in the United States in reality has little to do with the organization's publicly proclaimed goals, such as protecting the civil rights of Muslims. Rather, the true goal is to destroy the United States from the inside and work to establish a global Islamic society. Four, the primary function of the Brotherhood structures from the early 1990s forward was to support materially and politically the Hamas movement in the Palestinian territories as instructed by the Office of the General Guide of the Muslim Brotherhood in Cairo. Now, to understand the role and the importance of the the Brotherhood, officially known as Al-Ikhwan, al Muslimin, and you know some of these words I'm not going to be able to say real well, so you can laugh at me for those of you who know them real well. It is essential to understand the history of the movement. It is not a, it is not a single monolithic organization, but rather a collective of some, a collection of some 70 national organizations with competing interests and desires. The headquarters is in Egypt. Did you hear that? The headquarters is in Egypt. And the international directed directed is in, is based in Europe. The Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in 1928 by Hassan Albana in response to the the 
the then recent collapse of the Muslim Caliphate. Al-Banna called for the establishment of a world Islamic state governed by Quranic law, ruled by a single caliph. Caliph is pronounced differently depending on who's saying it. The Brotherhood's creed is God is our objective, the Quran is our constitution, the Prophet is our leader, Jihad is our way, and death for the sake of God is the highest of our aspirations. The Brotherhood took the anti-Western tone under the ideological influence of Syed Qutb in a seminal um, 1946 article published in the Egyptian magazine in Al-Rizawa, after visiting the United States, Qutub wrote, all Westerners are the same, a rotten conscience, a false civilization. How do I hate these, how I hate these Westerners, how I despise all of them without exception. He came in Qutub, he came to believe that the world was in a state of jahilalah, or the primitive savagery of Islamic revelation that the Muslims had lost their way in large part because of Western influences. Now, you got to take hints of what I'm saying in reflection of what is going on. <clears throat> Quetev's thinking crystallized in a slim tract. Now, this his now his most enduring work titled Milestones, which outlines not only the dismal state of the world, but the duty of Islam to dispel the darkness by spreading Islam by whatever means available. All non-Islamic states, including that of his native Egypt, were deemed illegitimate. So the rulers are deemed illegitimate unless they are truly an Islamic state. Only the Quran and its laws were viewed as legitimate. So if a, if a country is not following the Quranic law, <clears throat> not implementing the Sharia, not implementing the things that, that are talked about by Muhammad, not producing or advancing jihad, then it is considered illegitimate. And the rulers are thus uh, called to be thrown out. Qutub was hanged in 1966 um, by Nasser, I believe it was Nasser, who is the leader of Egypt. I'm trying to think if it was Sadat or Nasser. I, because I know Albana was killed by Nasser. Uh, but his book, his book, and he did a lot of writing. Remained in print in many remains in print today in many languages, and is sold on the Muslim Brotherhood websites and in mosques and around the world. And there is actually, you know, and if, for those of you who are interested, there is actually a website that actually has his books if you are interested. It's very long for me to say it, so I'm not even going to say it because I don't really have time to <coughs> spell it out. But I will. Um, include that on my Facebook site and you can uh, find it there. Many of the Brotherhood's early leaders who opposed both colonialism and the secular regimes in which they lived were killed and others driven out by their homelands. So Egypt drove out the these fundamentalists 
Nasser and Sadat. <clears throat> and I think it might have been Sadat when he Kutub uh, was killed. Um, I did so much study on the history that I'm mixing up which one he was killed under. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many of the survivors, including scores of highly educated men with skills lacking in much of the Arab world, eventually found refuge in what country? Saudi Arabia, where the anti-Western Wahhabi establishment became welcomed them. In the 1970s, flushed with flush with cash from the first oil boom and deeply disturbed by the successful Islamic revolution in Shiite Iran, Saudi leaders set out to spread their own conservative brand of brand of Sunni Islam. And so who hit the trade centers on 9-11 was a lot of Saudi Arabian men. And the one who actually drove the first plane into one of the towers was a member of the hmm, Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, let me give you, before I go on, I'm going to give you a, a brief, um, a, a very brief history of, of uh, who the Shiites are and the Sunnis and the, and the Wahhabites. Shia Islam is based on the teaching of Islamic, of the Islamic holy book, the Quran, both of them are and the message of the final prophet of Islam, uh, Muhammad. Excuse me. In other schools of thought, uh, Shia Islam holds that Muhammad's family, the Al-Albat, the people of the house, and certain individuals among his descendants who are known as imams have special spiritual and political authority over the community. Okay, now, <clears throat> Sunni, maybe you'll see the contrast um, here. Sunni Islam is the largest branch of Islam. It is referred to as the orthodox version of, of the religion. The word Sunni comes from the term Sunnah, Arabic, which refers to the sayings and actions of Muhammad that are recorded in the Hadith. Those are the collections or of narrations regarding Muhammad. The Sunni branch of Islam has four legal schools of thought, or Madhab, which are uh, accepted among one another. The four schools studied about Islamic customs, practices, and hadith from the sixth month, Jafar al-Sadiq, grandson, and he was the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad. He was the <clears throat> fifth school of thought for the Muslims. The Sunni Muslims don't account for any of Jafar al-Sadiq's contributions because he is, is Imam Ali's grandson, related to the Shia Muslims. Sunni Muslims accept only the first four caliphs as the rightful uh, political successors of Muhammad and accept hadith narrated by Muhammad's companions. The Wahhabi, or Wahhabism, is a religious movement or a branch within Sunni Muslim Islam that is considered extremist and or heretical by many Sunni and Shia, such as the Islamic Supreme Council of America, and condemns all Sharia and most Sunnis 
as non-Muslim in turn. It is claimed that it was developed or self-described revived by an 18th century Muslim theologian, Muhammad Ibn Abd-Allah-Wahhab from Najib, Saudi Arabia, who advocated purging Islam of impurities. Wahhabism is the dominant form of Islam in Saudi Arabia. It has developed considerable influence in, in the Muslim world, in part through Saudi funding of mosques, schools, and social programs. The primary Wahhabi doctrine is Tahid, the uniqueness and unity of God. Ibn Abd al-Wahhab was influenced by the writings of Imtamimya and questioned classical interpretations of Islam claiming to rely on the Quran and, and the Hadith. He attacked or per, a perceived moral decline and political weakness in the Arabian Peninsula and condemned what he perceived as idolatry, the popular cult of saints and shrine and tomb visitation. Well, that would include going to Mecca. Now, Walid Shabbat, who I mentioned last week, and Mosav Hassan Youssef, Walid Shabbat, to, to refresh your memory, is a, uh, he was an intifada uh, terrorist under Yasser Arafat. He served and, and killed many Israelis. <clears throat> Mosav Hassan Youssef is the son of, of a, of Hussein Youssef, who is a Hamas leader. And Wasa Sultan is from Syria, and she is he, she grew up in <clears throat> um, she grew up in is, is Islam and has rejected it. And all of these are people are now in the United States. But why I'm mentioning them here is because they say that all of these the Sunni, the Shia, the Wahhabi. These these are divisions that we actually are are kind of secluding or dividing them from one another. When in fact they're all the same. They consider Islam or Muslim one. They don't consider them in groups. These are just fractions. These are just uh, viewpoints per se within it, and they cause clashes within tribal people. But Ultimately, when it comes down to it, they're all one. It's kind of like our denominations within the church. And when we get down to the fundamentals of what we believe, we'll find we agree more than we disagree with one another. Now, along with this, now, what is the Muslim, the Brotherhood Supreme God, Muhammad, uh, Mahdi Akhet, he is, he is the Supreme Guide of the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood. He says this about about it. All these things are American Zionist tricks. The Shiites attack one another, the Sunnis attack one another, the Shiites attack and Sunnis, the Sunnis, but the Muslim Brotherhood has a principle which I declared from day one. The Shiites, Shiites and the Sunnis are brothers. <clears throat> and he is calling for all of them to come together. Don't let colonial uh, divide them like it did with Britain. Britain came in it. They actually came into, you know, when they were colonizing uh, the Arab world and the Arabs hated them, especially in Egypt. But there's one thing that they did, and they did this on purpose, is they divided the Islamic nations. 
they divided the groups on purpose so that they could not gain strength and come and attack them because Europe was almost overrun by Islam uh, in the days of the Crusades. And the only thing I think the Crusades actually did to benefit the world was to keep Islam from getting and overtaking Europe way back uh, in, in, in those days. It also uh, regained Jerusalem. But there was this war of Islam and Christianity back then, and Islam was intending to take over the world by force <clears throat> and to convert everybody by force. So um, what he's saying here is that don't let them divide you anymore like they have in the past. Do not listen to them because we're all brothers and we all need to come together. Now, the Brotherhood activities <clears throat> helped launch the largest Saudi charities, including the Muslim World League and the World Assembly of Muslim Youth, all closely tied with the conservative Saudi clergy. League and World Assembly of Muslim Youth, okay, branches of these groups would later be implemented in, in funding Al-Qaeda, or I call it Al-Qaeda, a non-exhaustive list of the militant Islamists and organizations that emerged from the Brotherhood's ranks include many now-familiar now names as Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, or we know him as the Blind Sheikh, responsible for killing hundreds of civilians and serving a life sentence in New York for planning terrorist attack in the United States. The Islamic Resistance Movement, which is another name for Hamas, founded and funded by the Brotherhood in 1987 to destroy Israel. Ayman Zahari, you know we all know this name, and I don't know why I can't say it today. This is the founder of the, founder of the Brotherhood-based Egyptian Islamic Jihad and currently Osama bin Laden's chief deputy, Abdullah Azam, who went on to Afghanistan and eventually became a co-founder of Al-Qaeda. And Hassan Al-Tarabi, bin Laden's benefactor and host during his stay in Sudan. Oh, yeah, we see Sudan in the connection here. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Sheikh Mohammed, architect of the 9-11 attacks, told U.S. interrogators he was drawn to violent jihad in Kuwait after joining the Brotherhood and attending its desert youth camps. Spanish Judge Beltazar Garzon accused Imam Edin Barakat Yakas, the alleged mastermind of the March 11, 2004 attack on the Spanish train that killed 198 people and others implicated in the attack of belonging to the Brotherhood. So am I painting this terrorist uh, picture of the Brotherhood? Now the Brotherhood in the United States, because of pressure from Egypt, many Brotherhood members moved to a more hospitable environment in Saudi Arabia. Though it was developed in, in birthed in Egypt, it was actually uh, more comfortable to go to Saudi Arabia because they're a, a far more... Uh, acceptable there. During the first years in the United States, the Aquan were only loosely organized. A U.S. chapter <clears throat> excuse me, of the Muslim Brotherhood was formed in the early 1960s after hundreds of young Muslims came to the U.S. to study 
particularly at large Midwestern universities in Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. The center of activity was the Muslim Students Association, founded in 1963. Now, some belonged to the Muslim Brotherhood in their homelands and wanted to spread its ideology here. In the 1970s, a new influx of Muslim brothers from the Middle East first created tensions, but in the end developed a more professional organization. In 1962, the Muslim Students' Union was founded by a group of the first Iquans in North America, and the meetings of the Iquan became conferences and students' students union camps. Zayed um, Noman indicates that the first Muslim brothers who came to the United States were still seen as members of the Muslim brothers of their country of origin. If a Muslim brother came from a country that had no large gathering in the U.S., gathering, did you just hear that large gathering in the U.S.? This is what they did. He was advised to associate with the nearest movement to them, the interlocking movements, okay? For instance, an Iraq might have joined Jordan's Iquan, and, for instance, a Libyan might associate with Egypt's Iquan and so forth. So if if you're from Egypt or if you're from Libya and you're part of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and you don't have a group that's developed in the United States yet, a large enough group, then you, you kind of go with with the other group from Egypt or wherever. It's kind of like cell groups where, where, you know, if your cell group isn't as, you know, big – as another cell group, you guys can go together and fellowship together is, you know, is exactly what it was like. But the fact that these groups are created here in the U.S. and are existing is 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 something to really take note of. After their initial years in the United States, members of the Muslim Brotherhood began to expand in different directions. In his memo, Al Noman makes a particularly interesting comment about the differences between the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S. and U.S. and the Middle East. Our methods and our means are different from the Orient, unless it was compatible with the reality of the Islamic movement over here. Our methods are always driven from the nature of the organizational base, from the nature of the country, which is America, and also from. Um, the Malaysia. Malaysia. In 1976, the Malaysian Group for Islamic Studies was founded, and it is now, sorry, it now has an annual conference attended by 600 students in 1990, a leadership conference, and other camps in various regions. It works... Its work is centered on the students coming from Malaysia and Southeast Asia. The leadership of the Iquan plays a general role in directing the Malaysian group. <clears throat> now, um, a defining moment for the Brotherhood in the United States and elsewhere was the 1987 formation of Hamas as an armed group. What set Hamas apart from other Islamic groups was its public and organic link to the Muslim Brotherhood. Article 2 of the Hamas Charter states that the Islamic resistance movement is one of, one of the wings of the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine. The Muslim Brotherhood movement is a, a universal organization which constitutes the largest Islamic movement of modern times. 
It is characterized by its deep understanding, accurate comprehension, and its complete embrace of all Islamic concepts and all aspects of all aspects of life, culture, creed, politics, economics, education, society, justice, and judgment. The spreading of Islam, education, art, information, science, and the occult and conversion to Islam. This explicit endorsement of Hamas by the U.S. group carries over to many other documents, many of them relating to the first intifada or Palestinian uprising against Israeli rule in the West Bank and Gaza. Hamas was a major participant in the Intifada and worked to sabotage the 1993 Oslo Accords that brought a virtual end to that round of violence. The group organization supported by the Intifada and repeatedly reiterated the link of the Muslim Brotherhood to Hamas. As one 1992 Islamic Association of Palestine IAP memo noted, this is on the no- memo, With the increase of intifada and the advance of the Islamic action inside and outside Palestine, the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas, provided through its activities in resisting the Zionist occupation a lot of sacrifices from from martyrs, detainees, wounded, injured, fugitives, and or deportees. And it was able to prove that it is an original and an effective movement in leading the Palestinian people. This movement, which was bred in uh, the bosom of the mother movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, restored hope and life to the Muslim nation, and the notion that the flare of jihad has not died out and that the banner of Islamic jihad is still raised. This is not an isolated statement, but one that is, is a theme in much of the group's deliberations. Now it goes on to say this, Hamas is a godly gift to the Palestinian people, the Muslim nation and the international Islamic movement. Like the gift of the Afghani jihad and the establishment of the nation of Islam in Sudan and the triumph Islam and Muslim in several places, Algeria, Jordan, Malaysia, Turkey, the fall of communism in the, and the liberation of Islamic states, the endurance of the international movement in face of many shocks, shocks the Gulf crisis and the international internal conflicts. It is clear that the mother, mother <coughs> it is clear that the Brotherhood groups in the United States were steadily branching off and building groups that were to be perceived as independent entities, but in reality were all linked. And to this day, it appears that many still are. They say this again. The Central Committee for Palestinian Activism in America is in charge of planning, directing, and following up on all work related to and connected to the group. It includes several committees and organizations, some of which are the Islamic Association of Palestine, the Occupied Land Fund, the United Association for Studies and Research, the Office of Foreign Affairs, the Investment Committee, the Rehabilitation Committee, the Medical Committee, and the Legal Committee. Now, there's very, there's a lot more groups, and I'm not going to go to go there because 
uh, it would bore you to tears. <clears throat> Unless you're really interested, you can just go on, on a website and find out what these committees are if you're extremely interested. And I also have a really great book that can can help you in this area, too, if you're interested. It's called The Islamic Threat Updates, Almanac, number one. And the number on this is 5762. <clears throat> this book is by, uh, I believe he's a Jew, named Victor Mordecai. And he offers a compelling proof that the fanatic Islam that fanatic Islam is a threat to your world today, and it tells you all the different things that have been a threat that are documented. This is uh, book number one, and there is a number two. I just haven't got that yet. Um, and so it starts early in the years. This was published in 2003. So if you're interested in getting um, a good source of information of, of what kind of terrorist things are happening in our country and the world, this is a great book to get. <clears throat> the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, C-A-I-R, was developed in 1994. Now, CARE is the first mentioned by name in the Brotherhood documents as part of the July 30th, 1994 agenda of the Palestinian Committee. CARE would grow to become the leading Iquan voice in the media and become the most prominent public face of the group. CARE's leadership was taken directly from the IAP and the Palestinian Committee. The group organization went to great lengths to quickly destroy documents and how different parts of the group could interact and connect with each other. So what they would do is if they're getting if they're getting um, found out what they're really um, existing for, then they would quickly destroy the documents and um, they would contact each other. They also went out of their way to hide their true identities on on purpose. They they would do this on purpose to hide hide underneath a different banner. Um, and once they're found out, they will destroy it, and then they will disperse and and connect to a different group. The need for trusted cadres working on behalf of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States is evident of one. Un- if one understands the group's self-articulated goals in this country. And I am going to scare you to death now um, as I am going to tell you what their goals are. One document titled the Explanatory Memorandum on the General Strategic Goal for the Group in North America stands out as being of particular importance because it so clearly and unambiguously articulates the goals of the Muslim Brotherhood, articulated elsewhere by Yusuf of al-Qadawi and other Iqan leaders in the context of the Brotherhood efforts inside the United States. The date is May 22, 1991. It is important both for its content as well as its authoritative authorship carrying the weight of the Shura Council and the Organizational Conference of 1987. Now, the author is Mohammed Akram. He is probably the same person as Dr. Mohammed Akram Abdulouni or Abdulouni. 
At the time of writing, Aduluni was one of the key players within the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S. He was a member of the Shura Council and five departments within the apparatus, including the Planning Department, the Special Committee, and the Secretary of the Palestinian Committee. Currently, Abdulini is in the Secretary General of the International Al-Quds Foundation in Lebanon and the Director of the Al-Quds International Institute. It is interesting to note that the International Al-Quds Foundation is headed by Sheikh Yusuf Al-Qawadawi. He is a big uh, uh, imam that writes a lot of material. And he is one of the most influenced and icon thinkers and theologians of recent decades. In order to establish his authority in the explanatory memorandum, Adeluni states that his authority is derived from the 1987 Shura Council and Organizational Conference of 1987. The highest governing bodies of the Brotherhood in the United States. To claim his authority, he quotes the group's agreed goals from the conference, including, and this is what he's saying, quote, an enablement of Islam in North America, meaning establishing an effective and stable Islamic movement led by the Muslim Brotherhood, which adopts Muslims' Muslims' causes domestically and globally, and which works to expand the observant Muslim base aims at unifying and directing Muslims' efforts, presents Islam as a civilization alternative, and supports the global Islamic state wherever it is. After going into some detail and establishing the relevance and authority of this uh, missive, Adulini spends considerable time on the fundamental concept of settlements central to the Muslim Brotherhood-led efforts in North America. He describes settlement as necessary so that Islam and its movement become part of the homeland it lives in. Did you hear that? It, has, it becomes part of the, the movement becomes part of the homeland it lives in. So it actually uh, meshes in with society and you can't tell the difference. The process of settlement is also defined as follows, and here they define this, quote, in order for Islam and its movement to become a part of the homeland in which it lives, stable in its land, rooted in the spirits and minds of its people, enabled in the life of its society, in, in the life of its society, and has firmly established organizations on which the Islamic structure is built in which the testimony of civilization is achieved, the movement must plan and struggle to obtain the keys and the tools of this process in carrying out this grand mission as a civilization jihadist responsibility which lies on the soldiers of Muslims and on top of them, the Muslim Brotherhood in this country. So it's going to be... under the umbrella of the Muslim Brotherhood. The last statement clarifies that the concept of settlement is not intended solely to allow the Aquan-led Muslims in North America to live peacefully, 
but is in fact part of jihad or holy war for the conquest of the land in is by Islam. Adulini is clear when he writes about the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in North America, built on his previous statements, and is also clear that the brothers must understand both the gravity and importance of their undertaking in the process of settlement. And this is what they say, quote, the process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process with all the world with all the world word means. The Aquan must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and God's religion is made victorious over all the religions. Without this level of understanding, we are not up to this challenge and we and have not prepared ourselves for jihad yet. It is a Muslim's destiny to perform jihad and work wherever he is and wherever he lands until the final hours come. And there is no escape from that destiny except for those who chose to slack. But would the slackers and the mohajidin be equal? The writer, end quote, the writer understands that the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S. is not strong enough to perform the civilization jihad on its own, but clearly sees the Muslim Brothers as the vanguard. And quote, here they say again, as for the role of the Iquan, it is the initiative pioneering leadership raising the banner and pushing people in that direction. They are then to work to employ direct and unify Muslims' efforts and powers for this process. In order to do that, we must possess a mastery of the art of coalitions, the art of absorption, and the principles of cooperation. We need to adopt the principle which says, take from people, dot, 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 the best they have. Their best specializations, experiences, arts, energies, and abilities. By people here, we mean those within or without the ranks of individuals and organizations. To me, there is no choice for us other than alliance and mutual understanding of those who desire from our religion and those who agree from our belief in, in work. And the U.S. Islamic arena is full of those waiting, the pioneers, end quote. To emphasize the strength of the group, the author concludes by listing 29 groups under the heading, a list of our organizations and the organizations of our friends. Imagine if they all marched according to one plan. Those listed include the Islamic Society of North America, the Muslim Student Association, the North American Islamic Trust, the Muslim Arab Youth Association, the International Institute of Islamic Thought, and the Occupied Land Fund, later the HLF, and other groups that continue to operate publicly as independent groups with no ties to each other or to the Muslim Brotherhood. But that's only in appearance. That's actually not truth because they do have ties. Now, the documents that I have actually read 
in pieces. I've shared parts of it. I haven't shared all of it, but I shared like meeting meaty sections of it. Uh, the documents demonstrate unambiguously that the interna international Muslim Brotherhood has for more than three decades carried out a systematic plan to wage civilization jihad against the United States with the aims of making the nation part of the broader Islamic caliphate or Muslim global state. And when I say global state, they don't care about nations and states or separation and, and what matters to them. When they say a state, they mean ideology. They mean all of it, everything. There is no borders. State is the state of mind, the ideology, the global state, rulership. This has been the task of the interrelated organizations that make up the Muslim Brotherhood presence here in the United States. While membership in the Muslim Brotherhood is not illegal at this point here in the States, the group has shown a keen desire to portray each group as independent and unaffiliated within the ICON structure. To this end, strict security measures have been implemented in the organizations and security and secrecy are sources of worry and discussion. So they are actually working under great secrecy right now. The documents also show that while not publicly advocating violence, the Brotherhood has engaged in weapons training and has maintained a specific clandestine security branch to monitor law enforcement and intelligence agencies' interest agencies' interest in the Brotherhood activities. It is interesting to note that none of the documents deal with the state goals of the group organizations, such as protecting legal rights of Muslims or ensuring their civil rights are honored. Rather, in both tone and tenor, the documents deal with the advancement of the civilization jihad. See, they don't care about their rights as much as they care about civilization jihad this theme is different, this theme in different ways. This is the theme that they have, demonstrating that this was the primary goal of these organizations since their inception. The initial verdict on the trial of the Holy Land Foundation leaves the case unresolved, but a new trial promised by the Department of Justice may result in a less ambiguous verdict. So it was left on. Undone, but with this information, um, be you know, after 9/11/2001, uh, we are dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood, and so why is our country is so asleep to this? Just recently, in February of 2010, February 10th, 2011, when addressing the national security threats in the White House, Senior Sue Merrick. Republican North Carolina asked our Director of National Security, James Clapper, about the nature of this group and the proof found about its intentions, as written in the Holy Land trial documents. This, uh, you know, and I, I can put, repost this that you can see. It's on the Facebook site. But she is actually quoting from these documents and asking Clapper what he thinks about it. Clapper admitted the Brotherhood's prominent involvement in the events taking place in Egypt and the Mideast. So he's admitting that they are, they are behind this. Yet, 
Yet he went on to describe the, the Muslim Brotherhood as an umbrella term for a variety of movements that he called heterogeneous. And this means having widely dissimilar elements or constituents and largely secular. This was a firestorm because it's not secular, it's religious. It's very religious. It's Islamic. You cannot help but but say it's Islamic. It is not for the intention of a secular organization. It's not for a secular outreach. It's for an Islamic outreach and an Islamic agenda, which is the jihad, civilization jihad. Uh, why would he say this based on all the facts under the um, you know that we have under the uh, Muslim Brotherhood? The entities uh, you know I'm, you know I, I mentioned are not dissimilar. They're they are they are cooperating cooperating together. Now, so now we turn our attention back to Egypt and the uprising in, in the 11 countries we mentioned and the beginning, at the beginning. Is this the work of the Muslim Brotherhood? The answer is a definite yes. If this is true, why are they getting rid of their own rulers? Why are they getting rid of their Islamic rulers? Egyptian Hosni um, Mubarak, uh, he claimed to be Islamic, to a point. That's the, that's the key to point. Gaddafi, dictator, he claimed Islam, but he's a hypocrite. Hosni Mubarak is a hypocrite. So, uh, and we forget Saddam Hussein. Oh, yeah. He was from the Ba'ath Party, so he, they didn't mind the United States getting him out of out of the way. So now you have Hosni Mubarak being ousted, and we see it from the West in our perspective as democracy, which, in a sense, it is democracy, but it's democracy for the sake of electing uh, someone who is for jihad and for the Quran and for so 95% of the people in Egypt today are muslim and and want to put the muslim brotherhood in charge they have been illegal since the time they were, they were uh in you know they came about because they kept wanting to oust the leaders on the basis of religious religious ideology of the Islam, Islam. And they wanted to get rid of their leader so that they can put the one they want in it, the caliph, who's going to follow the caliph in the one world civilization of the Islamic jihad. Now, in in uh, Qaddafi's case, uh, in, in, in all three of the dictators that I just mentioned, all of them were dictators and they were actually um, uh uh, seeking after their own desire and their own will. Uh, they were mandating over the people. And it is, it is, in Islam, it's all about Allah. It's not about them. And it's not about secularization. So now you have uh, the countries. And see if I can pull up the, the countries again. So you have 
Algeria, Morocco, Tanzania, Libya, Lebanon. Lebanon is actually you just stirring up a little bit. Uh, Jordan, Egypt, Bahrain, Yemen, Syria, uh, Qatar stirring up. UAE. We'll see what else is going to start stirring. Oh man, you know what they're doing? The Muslim Brotherhood is actually instigating this uprising to get rid to clean house to get rid of the hypocrites in the Arab nations so that they can unite together as one and not be divided. Uh, we have a scripture in this in, in 1 Peter 4.17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, I'm not applying this to Islam. I'm just saying there's a principle in Islam that is doing the same thing. They are cleaning house, and they are going to put in, in, in place someone who is going to follow the true Islamic state and true Islamic message of the Quran and Muhammad. I have about nine minutes left, and you know, I, I think at the end of my series on Islam, um, or towards the end, I'll actually open the lines for phone calls so that people can ask questions or, you know, debate me on something. You know, if I don't know it, I'm going to go and look for it. So um, I don't lose on that. Um, <clears throat> so I'll let you know when that time comes. Um, next week, I want to actually talk about Dawa Islam and... I'm not going to define that for you right now because I want you to I want you to pay attention and I want you to listen to what that's about. We're going to go back in a little bit in history um and we're going to I'm going to actually share with you um the heart of the Islamic message which is the leaders. We're going to go in, into Hassan Abana some of what he says we're going to go into to to say it quib quib i i am trying to get that right we're going to go into the fundamentalists we're going to see what dawah islam is all about and why it is so incredibly dangerous uh, <clears throat> um, this is not a joke this is not something that we need to ignore we need to pay attention, and you need to get your 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 life right with the Lord. You need to get yourself on fire, on fire for um, God and His kingdom, and see what your role in this day and time is. Because Islam is is not just coming to our nation; they're here. They are in the shadows right now, and they are ready and waiting to rise up. Just like they're starting to stir up in Europe, you hear this. They're saying this is the time. This is now. And our country is considered weak. Our country and the influence that we used to have in the world is is minimizing, is not being effective. Um, they are saying this is our window of opportunity. Let's take it. And they are not going to stop with the Arab countries, which they're cleaning house first. 
uniting together as a strong front, and then they're going to come conquer the West. And I'm telling you, they're all after Israel and after the United States. Europe is already having a lot of this uprising. And we think of that as like, wow, you know, Islam is taking over Europe. You know, we need to keep us from coming here. But you know what? Europe is not their big prize. Their big prize is the little Satan and the big Satan. We are the big Satan. We are the their ultimate goal. Israel and us are their ultimate goal. And these, you know, it's predicted in the last days that there's going to be a one world government. Now, I've talked about New Age movement. I have talked about uh, one world government. I talked about the emerging church. You know what? You know the author that's behind all this. It says in scripture that we will be, you know, we will be wise in this day and that, uh, you know, we are not blinded. We can see the schemes of the enemy. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God will open your eyes to see what is happening. Pray for discernment. Pray that he will show you what is coming and how to prepare and where to go and what is your role today in this day and this hour. I want to thank all of you for joining me. My name, again, is Brenda Johnson, and I am the host of As the Day Approaches. I'm excited to be part of this team on Blog Talk Radio with Phil Armstrong, Christine Wyke, and Susan Posio, and whoever else we add to the, the, the host shows. I uh, <clears throat> want to let all of my listeners know that uh, we are actually planning to uh, meet more regularly together and discuss these issues and kind of, you know, we might not have the same viewpoints on everything, but we can put our heads together and we can come up with quite a uh, good discussion and hopefully um, give people a run for their money. I want to thank everybody for joining me today. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can... Join me on my Facebook site, Brenda Johnson. I'm kind of hard to find um, just by that name. But if you look up Susan Puzio or Christine Wyke on Facebook or Phil Armstrong, Phil Armstrong has quite a few listeners. But um, if you look up any of those, I am friends of theirs on Facebook, and you can find me then. Also, I have a Facebook site called False Teachings, identifying them. And on this site, we not only just not only talk about world religions, we also talk about um, counterfeit Christianity, deception within the church, um, things like that. So right now, I've been focusing on different movements, um, and I hope my show can bring you a lot of great information and inspiration. I want to passionately uh, infect you with a desire to serve God in these last days. Thank you for joining me. See you next week. Bye now.